Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to spend it with us. And as usual, my us, I don't mean my multiple personalities. I do have a guest. And today I am joined by Gary Ellis, founder and president of, well, co-founder and president of Remesh. Gary, welcome. Hi, Lenny. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you today. But let's see if you think that when we're all done. But appreciate you taking the time regardless. So now, Gary, some folks may not know you and or Remesh. So let's go ahead and, you know, do the basic CV, the history, give folks kind of a grounding and background. So tell us about yourself and about Remesh. Awesome. Thank you so much. And again, it's great to be here. It's kind of a, a broad question to start, but I don't think I've taken a very traditional route to the market research side. And you know, we, we find ourselves in a space where there's almost two paths, right? There's the very purposeful school and PhDs and all of that world. And then some people who seem to stumble into this this space, and, and I definitely fall in that latter category. I don't want to give you my full career in too much detail. I think that would be maybe not the most interesting for the group here. But I started out in medicine. That was my first career. It was a very fast career and, and it kind of called to me because I want to be impactful. That, that's always been something that's been part of my life, help people be impactful for a multitude of reasons. Medicine became less interesting to me as I became closer and closer to kind of the end state of that. I quickly moved into politics. I had four political campaigns that I worked for. And actually, a lot of that is, is pretty foundational to a lot of the, the thinking and the kind of paradigm that I live in today. Again, similar reasons for being in the space. How do you understand and help people? immediately see the corollaries to market research. One of the campaigns that I was working on, I spent a lot of time with the candidate themselves, and it really struck me how relatively easy it was for them to project, right? They could get on traditional media, they could get on social media, they could get a message out. But the inverse of that was really challenging. The ability to actually have a infinite virtual table where their constituents could come and they could engage in meaningful dialogue. And that's what really stuck with me. And that that is a large part of the foundation of Remesh was the idea that it's super easy for at least maybe not decision makers, but for powerful stakeholders to be able to get their voice out. But to do the inverse just really wasn't there. And as we dug into the space more and more, we saw this really large opportunity for a change to how qualitative research could be done and really at the intersection of scale with quant as well. Started Remesh back in 2014, technically, really 2015. My co-founder and I moved to New York City together and launched launched the brand from there. There's obviously a, a lot more detail behind that story, but maybe that starts to get into it. So for the audience, I've, I've known uh, Gary for years, but I didn't know that about the political campaign. So that is interesting, and I definitely see the through line 
now that desire to make a difference. And yes, as you said, I think the vast majority of us just wind up here. So that's certainly true for me as well. Was not, and my kids would ask me, dad, how did you decide to be a market researcher? I would decide. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I just found myself here and love it. So when we met, I guess it was in that early days of Remesh just emerging and you entered the Inside Innovation Competition at IEX and won. And that began this trajectory of disrupting because there really hadn't been anything like Remesh with the idea of how to scale quality. Now, there had been kind of macro platforms early on, but nothing that utilized technology the way that you were utilizing technology, uh, deploying particularly at that point, you know, AI. So can we talk a little more about that nuts and bolts piece? And for the audience, this isn't just about Remesh. We're going to move into a conversation around the era of generative AI. That's kind of where we are right now. And I think of you as one of the early examples of deploying those types of technologies that have helped lead the whole world to where we are now. So let's talk about the process, the tech a little bit more and what that looks like. Yeah. A couple things to unpack there. First, you're absolutely right. The IEX competition a long time ago was was very instrumental to us. And a large part of that was both me and my co-founder. I'm the non-technical co-founder. It's really important if you want to build a tech-oriented company to have somebody like my co-founder, Andrew Konya, who is really steeped in this stuff. And I can talk about it, at least from a high, more theoretical perspective. Getting too deep in the weeds is not my area of expertise. But when you're an outsider coming into an industry that is so robust, so large and scaled, like the inside industry, you really do need to find those in the industry who are open to innovation, who want to see the next level of growth. And that is the promise of technology, right? The whole promise of technology is to do things better, faster, cheaper. And that's something that I have heard throughout the industry for a long time hasn't been necessarily, I don't want to say well embraced, but we haven't seen the changes that a lot of people I think have expected over the last decade plus. I'm really proud of what we've been able to do at Remesh. I think there's a huge opportunity here that we're not even kind of beginning to crest, which is exciting to me, but we've really leaned into early machine learning and natural language processing with the idea that humans and researchers are uniquely qualified to understand people, to really push what changes are necessary in organizations. But there's a lot of mundane work that is required specifically for qualitative research that computers can do. And the initial collection and synthesis of data, there's a lot of time that's spent if you're doing IDIs or focus groups, transcribing the, the words, doing some segmentation and some thematic clustering. And the theory here was that we can do that side of the equation so that the time that you're spending is 80, 90% on implementation and on kind of how do you pull it to the next level versus the inverse, which was true prior remesh, where you're spending 80, 90% of time on that, that really basic collection that anyone can do. And if you're a PhD researcher, you shouldn't be spending your time kind of on that, that mundane aspect of the research process. So I think what we saw was over the years, a lot had been changing on the quantitative side, right? And there's a lot that's happened with these, these companies that everyone's familiar with, with Qualtrics and Servmonkey or, or Momentum as they've rebranded themselves. And they've really pushed or they had really pushed quantitative forward, digitized it. And, you know, you're obviously part of the, the initial group that started moving research online. But we, we saw this gap in the qualitative side 
but we didn't really know what research was. So IEX and others who have this really amazing perspective on the industry have been instrumental in us aligning our technology with the real needs of researchers. Uh, and that's been a large part of what we want to do is we want to focus on what we're best at, which is core technology, figure out how we can put it in the hands of the kind of amazing researchers that we get to work with to make them super human. So the first iteration of the product was from the, the synchronous paradigm, right? Basically how to, the way I think about it is a, a macro group, right? Uh, to go from uh, managing 10 people to 100 people to 1,000 people, whatever the number is, by technology aiding that real-time synthesis of information so that it actually can be done by a human. And I've always thought it was one of the, the great examples of how technology can provide scale and free up, to your point, the researcher of the real value, which is that exploratory component, right? And deploying intuition. I mean, I, I am not a moderator, but uh, I've become incredibly fond of qualitative over the years because I, I appreciate that skill set to be on your toes and thinking in real time. And, and oh, let, let's follow that path down a little bit more, right? And that ability to unpack, which obviously it's hard to do with, with just a handful of people. So, so I'll get to the point. So you, you went through this process of building the synchronous product and that's been very successful. Yeah, you've done a great job of, of building into you know, a, a, a real leader in the industry. You know, recently you launched a product around asynchronous as well, right, to, to take that. So tell us a little bit about that combination of the two from your technological perspective on dealing with both of those scenarios. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I think you're absolutely right. The live product, to me, and, and kind of the way that the industry has embraced it, has largely been a replacement for focus groups, right? It's got a very similar dynamic where it's an open dialogue, where there can be back-and-forth conversation. And like you said, or, or I, I alluded to earlier, right, it's all about how do you make that group of 100 or, or more people, how do you make that approachable for a single moderator, right? That's the core technology that we have. But as we were working with our clients, there was this desire to have Remesh be asynchronous as well. There are challenges with live, right? You've got to get the audience there at the same time. And a lot of the times you've got larger geographic groups. Sample is always a lovely challenge that our industry has to work through. And we really think that our core technology, a way that we approach open-ended data, both the collection and the synthesis, that's what makes Remesh unique and powerful. And a lot of the problems that we had to solve for live, how do you build this, it's called the utility matrix, but really what we're trying to do is understand the responses from a large group of people and how everyone feels about those responses. And that how people feel about the responses is something that I think is really powerful and unique and something that uh, the researchers who embrace us, who really understand what the power of that looks like, that's where we see a lot of ROI generation for them. That doesn't require everyone to be there at the same time. What everyone being there at the same time allows you to do is pivot and probe and do some of the things that make dialogue and focus groups really powerful. But as we all know, there's a lot of times where you, you have most of the questions that you want to ask and the pivoting and probing isn't what's most important. What is most important is getting to the audiences that are hard or increasing your scale and the ability for us to launch, we call it Flex, which is an asynchronous version of Remesh, same question types, including that open-ended questions. It really just enhances how our clients are able to use us. It increases the use case and the flexibility. And 
We also have recently launched something we're calling Embedded, which is the ability to take that core technology, those open-ended questions, and put them into a quantitative survey. And a lot of what we have come to realize as of late, and I guess it's been 10 years, so maybe we could have learned this a little bit earlier, but what is powerful about us, again, is the fact that we are a technology company, and this is a massive industry that there's a lot of services required, and, and we don't want or need to compete on that side of the equation. We are we're thinking about ourselves as like the Intel inside. Take our chip, put it into your product, your offering, and we can enhance it. We can make everything a little bit more efficient. We can pull a little bit more color and context because you're using qualitative more than you would use traditionally. So I think that's what's really exciting to me about the expansion of our product offering. It's the same hardcore technology. It's the same natural language processing and machine learning that kind of sets us apart from the industry. But now it's just a little bit more accessible, which is really exciting to me because I think one of the things that you were alluding to here is the expansion of qual with new technology that's kind of starting to come into the fold here. And it's, it's coming fast. And we plan and, and expect to continue to be on the bleeding edge of this. And the new technology that's coming through, I think, just enhances everything that we're offering. So re really excited about kind of what the future here looks like. Uh, that would be a natural segue to kind of the next topic. But I want to circle back around to something else real quickly before we go there, because that is, I think, incredibly interesting. Because one of the things that we've often seen, particularly from the lens of IEX and, and the competition of seeing new companies that are very disruptive and in many cases are creating a new category, right? And that founder's journey of coming into an industry that's established, that is conservative by nature overall, you know, and of course, all the economic forces of incumbency, et cetera, et cetera, and gaining traction and, you know, trying to transform things. I mean, it, it took us 10 years to shift from phone to online right? during the, the advent of the online world. So it, there's been very few times that somebody or something, a technology has popped in that everybody said, oh yes, let's do that, right? It's always taken time. Can you talk a little bit about that entrepreneurial journey? Slogging up that hill. Absolutely. And, you know, I've kind of fallen in love with being an entrepreneur. It's challenging. It's exciting. There's new challenges kind of every turn. I also like being in this industry. And I like the fact that it's conservative because it means that there's a lot of white space to go after. It was really apparent to us right towards the beginning. And, and this was around the time that we were at IEX and some other events that what we were talking about it was a little bit hypothetical at the at the point, right? We were had a prototype at best, was considered a holy grail of market research. If you could actually start to extend qualitative research at scale, allow people to be seamlessly understood, that has always been something that I think the industry has been looking for. And it's taken us a long time to not necessarily perfect the product. There's always work to be done, but to get it up to the place where it can be really consumed at more of a mainstream level. I'm always really happy or impressed or amused. I don't know why I'm having a hard time choosing the word here, but I look at my client list and it's just the largest names in the industry are, are using our technology. And I don't think we're known at that level because almost no one's using Powered by Remesh. Everyone's rebranded it. It's their own name and product. And that's fine. That's great for us, right? That's the Intel inside. That's our technology powering them. But understanding that kind of arc to get there, I think is a really interesting question because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want to be front and center. You want to get your brand out there. You want to be 
the company. And I think ultimately there still is a lot of room for a company to win the insight space. And, and we'll see if that ever really happens. But my understanding, and you know this so much better than I do, so I, I should probably default to you here, but no one's got more than a 5% market share. I think 3.5% is, is arguably the largest market share than anyone has. And from my perspective, it's all about there should be someone who wins because they become the platform where you can go to as an organization and find all of your insights, right? I think about market research as active or passive data, right? Are you going out and collecting it? Are you asking people for information? Or are you synthesizing it from activities that they're doing either online or, you know, your finances, a whole multitude of data? And it's really the, the constellation of all of those data sets that provide the best perspective. And while I'd love Remesh to be all of that, we are active and qual-leaning, right? We expand the possibilities of what qual can be, but recognizing that we should be part of the system, not the system itself, at least not for, for now, I think was a really important learning for us and being disciplined as an entrepreneur to be focused on that, I think has been really valuable to us over the years. And it's allowed us to be a larger part of the conversation without being known than I think probably many people are aware of. That's actually a really great point. Everybody wants to be the Microsoft or the Google or the Apple. And yeah, from that analogy, I often use, but you know what? It's okay to be WinZip because in the early days of Microsoft, by God, WinZip was an incredibly useful utility that everybody used and it was embedded in. And I, I don't know the story of WinZip. I'm, I'm sure whoever created it, that they are you know, close to a billionaire if they <laughs> had a good deal just because of the ubiquity. So I think that's a great point. All right, so let's circle now back around to the world of generative AI. You know, one, one of the things always impressed me about you is that you were deploying NLP in a novel way, right? At that point, most of what we were seeing was applied on the back end, really as an analytical tool or within social media listening, right? There wasn't something, I didn't see many applications of natural language processing and in text analytics in a functional process oriented way that was natural, right? It made sense how it was being deployed. It was a use case that made an awful lot of sense in real time versus, again, just this kind of back end utility. Now, you know, <laughs> we're recording this in, in April, we're roughly six months into the chat GPT explosion, which at its purest form, in my mind, is is you know text analytics on steroids. Now I'm sure that that's a most people would be aghast of me saying that, but you know it's 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 an evolution of those core technologies. So you're looking at the competitive landscape. You're looking at the opportunity for the future for for remesh. You're looking at where things go. There's this new technology or new iteration, new evolution of these core technologies that everybody's adopting. And it seems to be for everything imaginable, right? They're throwing this technology at it. What do you think that means for the research industry first? And then we'll we'll build off of that. Yeah, I think it's a, it's the first time in my kind of experience here at Remash or kind of in my professional career period where technology has emerged that is so powerful, so disruptive that I do think it's going to to really change the way things are done yes, in the market research industry, but more globally as well. And there's a step function. So we've hit a maybe a, a incremental peak and we'll see what comes next. But I'm super impressed with the technology. And it took me a little bit to wrap my head around it because, I don't know, 
it's it's worth spending time to understand something before you you dive into it too deeply. But we are diving into it, and I think what it's going to do is it's going to open up qualitative research more than qualitative research has been opened up in the past. And right, we're certainly not alone as a company going after the qualitative space. My understanding, again, I'll default to you, Lenny, if I'm, I'm misconstruing things, is roughly 80% of time, money, energy in the research space is spent on the quantitative side and 20% spent on the qualitative side. And, and my belief has always been that should be inverse because qualitative done right has so much more depth and richness, but maybe not inverted. I think it should be more even, right? To my earlier point, it's how do you connect all of this data together? And I think Know, large language models. So that's a subset of generative AI. We don't, I'm now not thinking too much about the video and the image creation, which is super interesting as well. I think slightly less applicable for research. Maybe it has actually really impressive implications for the marketing side, what comes next after the research, but we can shelf that for the moment. But when you talk about large language models, there's two things that they do incredibly well or are starting to do really well. One is generation and one is summarization. What I understand is almost everyone is starting to say, okay, now we can take the open ends that we collect and we can run them through large language models and now we have summarization. I think that's going to change the way that people think about qualitative research and the accessibility and, and applications thereof. We're really excited because you know, the large language models, they're trained on these massive sets of data. And it's, I think, the unique data that you can apply to it that really will elevate the insights that you can get and how actionable they are. And yes, I, I think collecting a bunch of verbatims and running them through large language models will give you interesting summarizations, but I do think there's a step missing. You need some post-processing of that data to get segmentations in there, to get our agreement scores, and obviously I'm biased here, but I think that's a really powerful application to elevate current qualitative versus just saying, okay, cool, let's collect some language and then kind of summarize it. The other side is on the generative side, and I think the generative side has massive implications as well because you can generate discussion guides. You can pivot and probe with more assistance, if not full automation, and I really do see this type of technology impacting products kind of across the board. How do you onboard people? How do you provide customer success and sales? All of that stuff can be aided by the generative side of the technology. So. I think the implications are really wide-reaching. I'm excited that we are 10 days away from launching the first large language model functionality of Remesh. Closed beta, if you want to get involved, reach out to me. Sorry for the plug. <laughs> but but to me, it's it's going to be a, a huge efficiency gain. And, and if, I, if you think back to what I said originally, what we want to do is provide the technology that will make researchers more efficient and effective. This is the, the first time kind of technology has been introduced that I think everyone can embrace and it will pull the entire industry forward. The question is, what do you add to that to make it a little bit more valuable to continue to build on top of that? To me, it's, it's a really cool time. Yeah, I could not agree more. That is my inherent take as well. And now, of course, you're going to be joining a panel. By the time this podcast is released, it will be in the past. But so I'll encourage our listeners that we are doing a webinar on generative AI. Gary, uh, you'll be a guest as well as folks from Question Pro, Yapple, and Lucy all companies that have been on this journey to an extent already. So listeners, check that out. Well, there's a whole other discussion with other perspectives on that, and we're going to uh, tackle a lot of interesting issues on there. So I don't want to be repetitive. What I 
love about your take specifically is that you've had that mindset. We want to make your job easier so you can deliver better insights and create impact for your customers. I think that is the essence of your business. And there's a lot of fear around these things because our industry is it's a cost plus industry it's always been based on you know processes embedded in you know we price based on hours and you know fundamentally on going through transcripts is that that's a billable thing right it's it's a revenue generator and you know we are those things are just going to be made far less from a time consumption standpoint and therefore far less billable i i've for years uh, argued with folks on why we didn't see a massive adoption from quantitative into mobile. So it was really easy. You can't charge much for a mobile survey, right? A mobile optimized survey is going to be 10 minutes. So when the norm is 30 minutes, what incentive is there for suppliers to, or even for clients, to uh, try and streamline that down? It doesn't make its economic self-sabotage, right? So if you're kind of already in that space, it takes new companies introducing new approaches that where that model is fundamentally different and it's built in to see that transformation occur. So I love that you've taken that approach of saying, we want to help you navigate this transformation by giving you tools to create more value add. And that's going to be the big question for the industry and not just ours, everybody's industry, right? When mundane tasks are automated, then where do we deliver real value? And I think that qualitative research specifically is going to be that one of those shining lights. Because in my mind, the value of a qualitative researcher is not in writing a guide. It's not even in analyzing the, the transcripts. It is in that, that moderation process. It's in that exploratory. And ultimately, it's about the connecting the, the dots of information and the implications of that, right, to help guide the rest of the process. And it's exciting to hear that you're going to lean into those technologies more on that mission to empower that vision for your customers to be more impactful versus task-oriented. Is that a good summary? Did I misconstrue the mission? No, you can't see me, but I was nodding along. You can see me, but everyone else cannot. I don't want to undermine anything that I've said or you've said, but I would almost take it one step further, and uh, this this does circle back to why I'm in the space to begin with. It is about making the researchers more impactful, more valuable. But at the end of the day, it's about getting better outcomes for organizations. And yes, a lot of the times that are those are large businesses, but it's about inefficiencies in the world, right? That is why I'm doing what I'm doing is because growing up and all of my experiences, I've been quite frustrated with the fact that we treat and we've had to treat the world as this limited resource and we're all fighting over the same thing and i think what technology ultimately has the ability to offer is turning these resource deficit challenges into resource plethora problems there's a paradigm flip that i think we are rapidly approaching and it's really really exciting because there's a ton of inefficiencies that i think globally can be changed and research should be a driving force behind that. And a lot of people do research to check the box, but there's researchers and there's, those are the researchers that I really like that are actually trying to improve outcomes. And that to me is really, really exciting. And I think the future of humanity comes down to data 
and automation and energy. And I think research and data has to be a core component of how we make better decisions and push things through. And one of the interesting things, not to get too deep on the uh, LLM stuff that I think we have another conversation planned later, it's around the fact that we have this grand alignment problem. How do we make sure that as we push data and automation forward, we're aligning it to better humanity? And I think that's going to be the real challenge that we all want to be cognizant of it and, and work towards. And, you know, technology is going to be part of the future. The question is, do we wield it in a way that does benefit everyone? And I think ultimately, if you've got companies and you've got individuals who can see that future and want to go after it, if you're not playing along in that game, you're just going to fall short because technology will ultimately deliver on that promise of better, faster, cheaper. And if you're not embracing it, you're not going to be able to compete. I love that, Gary. I love that synthesis of values and pragmatism. And it reminded me that early on, if I recall correctly, and I think we've talked about this a long time, one of the things that you were angling for, and maybe even a, a client that you were working with potentially, was the UN and trying to address this information deficit component for them in multiple markets. So that was kind of baked into your DNA, wasn't it? This ethical consideration of, hey, there are big problems to solve in the world. Information helps solve those problems. And let's make it easier to get that. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's entirely accurate. And I think probably last time we talked about it, we were probably just beginning or thinking about how we can be working with the UN. We're now pretty deeply engaged with the UN, embedded in both their peacemaking and some of their other really important work around the world. So we've been part of multiple conflict resolutions with the United Nations. And the idea is, is what you would expect it to be which is the people who are suffering in conflict are the people. And there's often this asymmetry in information between what those people want and what leaders are doing. So what the UN has really embraced is how do you pull that feeling, that context, that knowledge from the individuals to the negotiating table? And it's resulted in some really impressive changes. I think Libya is arguably our most successful use case, although someone might need to check me on that. Prior to the ceasefire in Libya, we had engaged with several groups of Libyans on the ground and how the United Nations sources participants is super impressive to me, not something that we could do ourselves. But to be able to get hundreds of you know, young Libyans together and say, these are the problems that we're facing. This is the future that we want to see for our country. That was really, really powerful. And that was brought to the negotiating table and helped actually push a ceasefire forward. And now we're deeply engaged in the kind of post-ceasefire new building of the government there, you know, it gets back to why this company was built in the first place. It's because getting people, stakeholders, audiences engaged in those decision-making processes, it's super valuable. You want to know the perspectives that they have, and also it drives engagement on the other side, so you have better implementation at the end of the day, and it creates this virtuous cycle for, you know, nonprofits, the United Nations, or just companies themselves you want to build products, you want to market things better, you want to include the people who you're ultimately trying to serve in that entire process. So no, I really appreciate you bringing that up. We don't talk about it all that much, but it's something we're very proud of, uh, the work that we've been able to do there. Yeah, well, and rightfully so. So very cool. Because at the end of the day, right, we have to feel good about what we do as humans. And I think that's the dividing line between in my view, of successful entrepreneurs making a difference, right? It's not just, obviously, everybody wants to be successful from a, a financial standpoint and security and all of those things. And there's certainly people who maybe that's their primary motivation. 
but those aren't people that I enjoy interacting with. They're not people that I can fully understand. It, it's about making an impact and, and feeling good about what we contribute because that's our legacy at the end of the day, right? Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, right? I think as a entrepreneur, as a founder, one of the other things that I pay a lot of attention to is the macro environment, economics, political, social, and its important context to how you engage with the world. The world's really expensive right now, so I certainly want to be successful for a multitude of reasons, but ultimately, right, I want to progress humanity, and that that starts with my employees, right? I have a ton of respect for what my employees are able to do. I'm really proud that we're able to kind of take care of them on the on the back end as well. And then it's about the clients, right? And it's about making sure that everyone wins. And I don't want to be terribly repetitive, but that is the promise of technology. And that's why technology is really, I'm a, I'm a futurist at heart, right? That's why I've embraced technology is because it should be delivering on that, you know, rising tides lifts all ships. Everyone can be better served than they are today. And it's been, yeah, I'm pretty young. I'm 34 years old, almost 35, birthday's coming up. But the world hasn't progressed as I would hope it had over the course of my lifetime, my career so far. And the more that I think about it, not to be naive or self-assuming, but there's an opportunity here. And that's really what I want to be part of. And I've understood that maybe I won't be the public driving force, and that's perfectly fine with me. But if our technology can further the world, I will be able to rest easy, which is exciting. Oh, that's very cool, Gary. Very cool. So I want to be conscious of your time and as well as the listeners. So I was going to ask what gets you excited, but I think you just answered that. So let's do the flip side of that. What keeps you up at night? When you think you've, you've painted this grand vision of your motivation and the company and you know, what do you think? Oh man, but if this happens, that's going to be tough. Yeah. <sighs> it's a really loaded question in some ways as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll watch my tongue slightly and maybe I'll speak in broader terms. There's a lot of bad actors out there. You know, the status quo often prevails because the people who are in power are benefiting from it. And I think there's a lot of change that's necessary. I don't like the world that I'm living in and not to be depressive in any way, but you know, I see all of this opportunity for progression, for getting to the next level. Yet you look around, you read news stories, there's a lot of forces against that change. And that's both you know, globally, that's in the United States, that's within pockets of the United States. There's a lot of reasons why it's hard for change to happen. And I think that's what keeps me up at night is the fact that there's a lot of greed and power concentrated in the hands of, of a few, and that's going to be hard to overcome. I think the way that you do that is by elevating the messages of the many, by understanding what change is possible and by pushing for it. And I think that's another exciting thing that the research industry, the insight space in general can do is if, if we do things right, we'll be able to help the world understand what is possible. And that to me is really exciting. But the corollary is it's hard, right? There's This is not an easy journey I think that any of us are on. Yeah. We'll have a conversation offline on that. Our audience can't see. I was nodding too. Um, so, but we won't go into those things right now. So anything that you want to talk about that I didn't ask? I think we could probably talk for hours and maybe we'll offline. We'll, we'll figure out a way to do that a little bit more frequently. But I think you've covered a lot of really good topics here. I was going to say that you know, the topics that we haven't covered are, are those more macro issues, but I don't think they're too germane to this group here. But I guess 
be curious to hear what your take of the future of market research looks like and where you'd like to see Remesh kind of push that we're not pushing thus far. So the question that you didn't ask is the question I'm asking you. (laughs) (laughs) Turn about fair play, my friend. I absolutely fundamentally share your view. So am I cynical? When I'm being cynical, I say that the goal of research is to sell more stuff. And that is the pragmatic economic driver. But stuff has multiple definitions, right? Stuff is a message. It's an idea. It doesn't have to be a product. And from the perspective of how can we serve good, how can we connect information to ensure that not just the products, but also the ideas, the concepts, the values, the aspirations, the hopes of people are communicated and given an opportunity to help drive more value creation. I think that is what I I think we do fundamentally. And I think that that's the great hope of the industry and the technology will make that easier and easier. We'll decrease the barriers of entry for utilizing insights. We've already seen that with the advent of automation and all of its permutations in technology. I think we'll continue to see more and more entrants to utilize insights and hopefully to utilize them to create more, to create a better world in any way that you can define that, right? Whether it's a better product or a better government or a better whatever it may be. So I think that's the future. And I think that, that we will find that balance between the human element. We've talked for years you know, in the industry of, you know, we have to be strategy consultants and earn our seat at the table. Technology should allow us to get there. We haven't seen it yet. What we've seen so far is that we're still so bogged down in process that there are two different functions. There's the researcher and there's the strategist. But I think that we'll see a synthesis there over time out of necessity and that people will, will be able to just deliver far greater impact overall. So there you go. There's my, my hopeful, optimistic vision. No, I like it. And I think we're, we're relatively aligned. I think that's the compression, the, the distance between the ultimate consumer of whatever is being produced and the people producing it. And, and that's, that's a really important thing, I think, for the industry to push for is how to create those connections and get that feedback loop a little tighter. Yeah, it'll give us a seat at the table, but ultimately it should drive better innovation and better results. I absolutely agree. So thank you so much. This has been a a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Again, for our audience, if you've enjoyed this, there's another conversation you can check out, which is our webinar on iterative AI. I'll give a shameless plug as well. We're recording this in April, IEX North America is coming up in May with the home of the Inside Innovation Competition, the 10th anniversary of that competition. And you heard Gary say it, that it was an important milestone for uh, Remesh in, in winning that and going forward. So I hope that you join us in Austin for that as well. Gary, any last words? Anything else you want to put out there before we wrap up? No, just a big thank you again to you for having me and to the audience here. I think it's a really, really exciting time for our industry. Excited to be here for it, and and hopefully we can be just a little piece of the future. So I, I think you'll be more than a little. So where can people find you, Gary? So I have no social media presence really at all, but I am happy to have you reach out to me directly at my email, which is gary at remesh.ai. Don't fill my inbox too much, but I really enjoy meeting and understanding what people are talking about in this space. So I am quite open to people who are listening today who want to see if there's a there there. That's awesome. 
All right. So I want to give a big shout out. Thank you to our producer, Natalie, to our editor, James, to our sponsor, and of course, to our listeners. Thank you for taking time out of the day to spend it with us. Deeply appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the Green Book Podcast. We will be back again soon with another. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Join Green Book for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.